This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please contact LibriVox.org. Recorded by Peter Yearsley. Present at a Hanging and Other Ghost Stories by Ambrose Bierce. Some Haunted Houses, Part One. The Isle of Pines. For many years there lived near the town of Gallipolis, Ohio, an old man named Herman Deleuze. Very little was known of his history, for he would neither speak of it himself nor suffer others. It was a common belief among his neighbors that he had been a pirate. If upon any better evidence than his collection of boarding pikes, cutlasses, and ancient flintlock pistols, no one knew. He lived entirely alone in a small house of four rooms, falling rapidly into decay, and never repaired further than was required by the weather. It stood on a slight elevation in the midst of a large stony field overgrown with brambles and cultivated in patches and only in the most primitive way. It was his only visible property, but could hardly have yielded him a living, simple and few as were his wants. He seemed always to have ready money, and paid cash for all his purchases at the village stores round about, seldom buying more than two or three times at the same place, until after the lapse of a considerable time. He got no commendation, however, for this equitable distribution of his patronage, People were disposed to regard it as an ineffectual attempt to conceal his possession of so much money. That he had great hordes of ill-gotten gold buried somewhere about his tumble-down dwelling was not reasonably to be doubted by any honest soul conversant with the facts of local tradition, and gifted with a sense of the fitness of things. On the ninth of November, 1867, the old man died. At least, his dead body was discovered on the 10th, and physicians testified that death had occurred about twenty-four hours previously. Precisely how, they were unable to say, for the post-mortem examination showed every organ to be absolutely healthy, with no indication of disorder or violence. According to them, death must have taken place about noonday, yet the body was found in bed, the verdict of the coroner's jury was that he came to his death by a visitation of God. The body was buried, and the public administrator took charge of the estate. A rigorous search disclosed nothing more than was already known about the dead man, and much patient excavation here and there about the premises by thoughtful and thrifty neighbours went unrewarded. The administrator locked up the house against the time when the property, real and personal, should be sold by law with a view to defraying partly the expenses of the sale. The night of November the 20th was boisterous. A furious gale stormed across the country, scourging it with desolating drifts of sleet. Great trees were torn from the earth and hurled across the roads. So wild a night had never been known in all that region, but toward morning the storm had blown itself out of breath, and day dawned bright and clear. At about eight o'clock that morning, the Reverend Henry Galbraith, a well-known and highly esteemed Lutheran minister, 
arrived on foot at his house a mile and a half from the Deleuze place. Mr. Galbraith had been for a month in Cincinnati. He had come up the river in a steamboat, and, landing at Gallipolis the previous evening, had immediately obtained a horse and buggy, and set out for home. The violence of the storm had delayed him overnight, and in the morning the fallen trees had compelled him to abandon his conveyance and continue his journey afoot. "'But where did you pass the night?' inquired his wife, after he had briefly related his adventure. "'With old Deleuze at the Isle of Pines,' was the laughing reply, "'and a glum enough time I had of it. He made no objection to my remaining, but not a word could I get out of him.' Footnote. The Isle of Pines was once a famous rendezvous of pirates. End of footnote. Fortunately for the interests of truth, there was present at this conversation Mr. Robert Mosley Maron, a lawyer and literateur of Columbus, the same who wrote the delightful Mellowcraft Papers. Noting, but apparently not sharing the astonishment caused by Mr. Galbraith's answer, this ready-witted person checked by a gesture the exclamations that would naturally have followed, and tranquilly inquired, "'How came you to go in there?' This is Mr. Marron's version of Mr. Galbraith's reply. "'I saw a light moving about the house, and, being nearly blinded by the sleet, and half-frozen besides, drove in at the gate and put up my horse in the old rail-stable where it is now. I then rapped at the door, and getting no invitation went in without one. The room was dark, but having matches I found a candle and lit it. I tried to enter the adjoining room, but the door was fast, and although I heard the old man's heavy footsteps in there he made no response to my calls. There was no fire on the hearth, so I made one, and laying down before it with my overcoat under my head, prepared myself for sleep. Pretty soon the door that I had tried silently opened and the old man came in carrying a candle. I spoke to him pleasantly, apologizing for my intrusion, but he took no notice of me. He seemed to be searching for something, though his eyes were unmoved in their sockets. I wonder if he ever walks in his sleep. He took a circuit a part of the way round the room, and went out the same way he had come in. Twice more before I slept he came back into the room, acting precisely the same way, and departing as at first. In the intervals I heard him tramping all over the house, his footsteps distinctly audible in the pauses of the storm. When I woke in the morning, he had already gone out. Mr. Marron attempted some further questioning, but was unable longer to restrain the family's tongues. The story of Deleuze's death and burial came out, greatly to the good minister's astonishment. "'The explanation of your adventure is very simple,' said Mr. Marron. "'I don't believe old Deleuze walks in his sleep.' not in his present one, but you evidently dream in yours. And to this view of the matter Mr. Galbraith was compelled reluctantly to assent. Nevertheless, a late hour of the next night found these two gentlemen, accompanied by a son of the minister, in the road in front of the old Deleuze house. There was a light inside. It appeared now at one window and now at another. The three men advanced to the door. Just as they reached it, there came from the interior a confusion of the most appalling sounds, the clash of weapons, steel against steel, sharp explosions as of firearms, shrieks of women, groans, and the curses of men in combat. 
The investigators stood a moment irresolute, frightened. Then Mr. Galbraith tried the door. It was fast. But the minister was a man of courage, a man, moreover, of Herculean strength. He retired a pace or two, and rushed against the door, striking it with his right shoulder, and bursting it from the frame with a loud crash. In a moment the three were inside. Darkness and silence. The only sound was the beating of their hearts. Mr. Maron had provided himself with matches and a candle. With some difficulty, begotten of his excitement, he made a light, and they proceeded to explore the place, passing from room to room. Everything was in orderly arrangement, as it had been left by the sheriff. Nothing had been disturbed. A light coating of dust was everywhere. A back door was partly open, as if by neglect, and their first thought was that the authors of the awful revelry might have escaped. The door was opened, and the light of the candle shone through upon the ground. The expiring effort of the previous night's storm had been a light fall of snow. There were no footprints. The white surface was unbroken. They closed the door, and entered the last room of the four that the house contained, that farthest from the road, in an angle of the building. Here the candle in Mr. Maron's hand was suddenly extinguished, as by a draught of air. Almost immediately followed the sound of a heavy fall. When the candle had been hastily relighted, young Mr. Galbraith was seen prostrate on the floor, at a little distance from the others. He was dead. In one hand the body grasped a heavy sack of coins, which later examination showed to be all of old Spanish mintage. Directly over the body, as it lay, a board had been torn from its fastenings in the wall, and from the cavity so disclosed it was evident that the bag had been taken. Another inquest was held. Another post-mortem examination failed to reveal a probable cause of death. Another verdict of the visitation of God left all at liberty to form their own conclusions. Mr. Maron contended that the young man died of excitement. A Fruitless Assignment Henry Saylor, who was killed in Covington in a quarrel with Antonio Finch, was a reporter on the Cincinnati Commercial. In the year 1859, a vacant dwelling in Vine Street, in Cincinnati, became the centre of a local excitement, because of the strange sights and sounds said to be observed in it nightly. According to the testimony of many reputable residents of the vicinity, these were inconsistent with any other hypothesis than that the house was haunted. Figures with something singularly unfamiliar about them were seen by crowds on the sidewalk to pass in and out. No one could say just where they appeared upon the open lawn on their way to the front door by which they entered, nor at exactly what point they vanished as they came out. Or, rather, while each spectator was positive enough about these matters, no two agreed. They were all similarly at variance in their descriptions of the figures themselves. Some of the bolder of the curious throng ventured on several evenings to stand upon the doorsteps to intercept them, or failing in this, get a nearer look at them. These courageous men, it was said, were unable to force the door by their united strength, 
and always were hurled from the steps by some invisible agency, and severely injured, the door immediately afterwards opening, apparently of its own volition, to admit or free some ghostly guest. The dwelling was known as the Roscoe House, a family of that name having lived there for some years, and then, one by one, disappeared, the last to leave being an old woman. Stories of foul play and successive murders had always been rife, but never were authenticated. One day, during the prevalence of the excitement, Sailor presented himself at the office of the commercial for orders. He received a note from the city editor, which read as follows, "'Go and pass the night alone in the haunted house in Vine Street.' and if anything occurs worth while, make two columns. Sailor obeyed his superior. He could not afford to lose his position on the paper. Apprising the police of his intention, he effected an entrance through a rear window before dark, walked through the deserted rooms, bare of furniture, dusty and desolate, and, seating himself at last in the parlour, on an old sofa, which he had dragged in from another room, watched the deepening of the gloom as night came on. Before it was altogether dark, the curious crowd had collected in the street, silent, as a rule, and expectant, with here and there a scoffer uttering his incredulity and courage with scornful remarks or ribald cries. None knew of the anxious watcher inside. He feared to make a light, the uncurtained windows would have betrayed his presence, subjecting him to insult, possibly to injury. Moreover, he was too conscientious to do anything to enfeeble his impressions, and unwilling to alter any of the customary conditions under which the manifestations were said to occur. It was now dark outside, but light from the street faintly illuminated the part of the room that he was in. He had set open every door in the whole interior, above and below, but all the outer ones were locked and bolted. Sudden exclamations from the crowd caused him to spring to the window and look out. He saw the figure of a man moving rapidly across the lawn towards the building, saw it ascend the steps, then a projection of the wall concealed it. There was a noise, as of the opening and closing of the hall door. He heard quick, heavy footsteps along the passage, heard them ascend the stairs, heard them on the uncarpeted floor of the chamber immediately overhead. Sailor promptly drew his pistol, and groping his way up the stairs, entered the chamber, dimly lighted from the street. No one was there. He heard footsteps in an adjoining room, and entered that. It was dark and silent. He struck his foot against some object on the floor, knelt by it, passed his hand over it. It was a human head, that of a woman. Lifting it by its hair, this iron-nerved man returned to the half-lighted room below, carried it near the window, and attentively examined it. While so engaged, he was half-conscious of the rapid opening and closing of the outer door, of footfalls sounding all about him. He raised his eyes from the ghastly object of his attention, and saw himself the centre of a crowd of men and women dimly seen. The room was thronged with them. He thought the people had broken in. "'Ladies and gentlemen,' he said coolly, "'you see me under suspicious circumstances, but—' 
His voice was drowned in peals of laughter, such laughter as is heard in asylums for the insane. The persons about him pointed at the object in his hand, and their merriment increased as he dropped it, and it went rolling among their feet. They danced about it, with gestures grotesque and attitudes obscene and indescribable. They struck it with their feet, urging it about the room from wall to wall, pushed and overthrew one another in their struggles to kick it, cursed and screamed and sang snatches of ribald songs as the battered head bounded about the room, as if in terror and trying to escape. At last it shot out of the door into the hall, followed by all with tumultuous haste. That moment the door closed with a sharp concussion. Sailor was alone in dead silence. Carefully putting away his pistol, which all the time he had held in his hand, he went to a window and looked out. The street was deserted and silent. The lamps were extinguished. The roofs and chimneys of the houses were sharply outlined against the dawn light in the east. He left the house, the door yielding easily to his hand, and walked to the commercial office. The city editor was still in his office, asleep. Sailor waked him and said, I have been at the haunted house. The editor stared blankly, as if not wholly awake. Good God! he cried. Are you sailor? Yes, why not? The editor made no answer, but continued staring. I passed the night there, it seems, said sailor. They say that things are uncommonly quiet out there, the editor said, trifling with a paperweight upon which he had dropped his eyes. Did anything occur? Nothing whatever. A VINE ON A HOUSE About three miles from the little town of Norton, in Missouri, on the road leading to Maysville, stands an old house that was last occupied by a family named Harding. Since 1886 no one has lived in it, nor is anyone likely to live in it again. Time and the disfavour of persons dwelling thereabout are converting it into a rather picturesque ruin. An observer unacquainted with its history would hardly put it into the category of haunted houses, yet in all the region round such is its evil reputation. Its windows are without glass, its doorways without doors. There are wide breaches in the shingle roof, and for lack of paint the weatherboarding is a dun grey. But these unfailing signs of the supernatural are partly concealed and greatly softened by the abundant foliage of a large vine overrunning the entire structure. This vine, of a species which no botanist has ever been able to name, has an important part in the story of the house. The Harding family consisted of Robert Harding, his wife Matilda, Miss Julia Went, who was her sister, and two young children. Robert Harding was a silent, cold-mannered man, who made no friends in the neighbourhood, and apparently cared to make none. He was about forty years old, frugal and industrious, and made a living from the little farm which is now overgrown with brush and brambles. He and his sister-in-law were rather tabooed by the neighbours, who seemed to think that they were seen too frequently together, not entirely their fault, for at these times they evidently did not challenge the observation. The moral code of rural Missouri is stern and exacting. Mrs. Harding was a gentle, sad-eyed woman, 
lacking a left foot. At some time in 1884 it became known that she had gone to visit her mother in Iowa. That was what her husband said in reply to inquiries, and his manner of saying it did not encourage further questioning. She never came back, and two years later, without selling his farm or anything that was his, or appointing an agent to look after his interests, or removing his household goods, Harding, with the rest of the family, left the country. Nobody knew whither he went, nobody, at that time, cared. Naturally, whatever was movable about the place soon disappeared, and the deserted house became haunted in the manner of its kind. One summer evening, four or five years later, the Reverend J. Gruber of Norton, and a Maysville attorney named Hyatt, met on horseback in front of the Harding Place. Having business matters to discuss, they hitched their animals, and going to the house, sat on the porch to talk. Some humorous reference to the sombre reputation of the place was made, and forgotten as soon as uttered, and they talked of their business affairs until it grew almost dark. The evening was oppressively warm, the air stagnant. Presently both men started from their seats in surprise. A long vine that covered half the front of the house, and dangled its branches from the edge of the porch above them, was visibly and audibly agitated, shaking violently in every stem and leaf. "'We shall have a storm!' Hyatt exclaimed. Gruber said nothing, but silently directed the other's attention to the foliage of adjacent trees, which showed no movement. Even the delicate tips of the boughs silhouetted against the clear sky were motionless. They hastily passed down the steps to what had been a lawn, and looked upwards at the vine, whose entire length was now visible. It continued in violent agitation, yet they could discern no disturbing cause. "'Let us leave,' said the minister. And leave they did. Forgetting that they had been travelling in opposite directions, they rode away together. They went to Norton, where they related their strange experience to several discreet friends. The next evening, at about the same hour, accompanied by two others, whose names are not recalled, they were again on the porch of the Harding House, and again the mysterious phenomenon occurred. The vine was violently agitated, while under the closest scrutiny from root to tip, nor did their combined strength applied to the trunk serve to still it. After an hour's observation, they retreated, no less wise, it is thought, than when they had come. No great time was required for these singular facts to rouse the curiosity of the entire neighbourhood. By day and by night, crowds of persons assembled at the Harding House, seeking a sign. It does not appear that any found it, yet so credible were the witnesses mentioned that none doubted the reality of the manifestations to which they testified. By either a happy inspiration or some destructive design, it was one day proposed, nobody appeared to know from whom the suggestion came, to dig up the vine, and after a good deal of debate this was done. Nothing was found but the root. Yet nothing could have been more strange. For five or six feet from the trunk, which had at the surface of the ground a diameter of several inches, it ran downward, single and straight, 
into a loose, friable earth. Then it divided and subdivided into rootlets, fibres, and filaments, most curiously interwoven. When carefully freed from soil, they showed a singular formation. In their ramifications and doubling back upon themselves, they made a compact network, having in size and shape an amazing resemblance to the human figure. Head, trunk, and limbs were there. Even the fingers and toes were distinctly defined, and many professed to see in the distribution and arrangement of the fibres in the globular mass representing the head a grotesque suggestion of a face. The figure was horizontal. The smaller roots had begun to unite at the breast. In point of resemblance to the human form, this image was imperfect. At about ten inches from one of the knees, the cilia forming that leg had abruptly doubled backwards and inward upon their course of growth. The figure lacked the left foot. There was but one inference, the obvious one, but in the ensuing excitement as many courses of action were proposed as there were incapable counsellors. The matter was settled by the sheriff of the county, who as the lawful custodian of the abandoned estate ordered the route replaced and the excavation filled with the earth that had been removed. Later inquiry brought out only one fact of relevancy and significance. Mrs. Harding had never visited her relatives in Iowa, nor did they know that she was supposed to have done so. Of Robert Harding and the rest of his family nothing is known. The house retains its evil reputation, but the replanted vine is as orderly and well-behaved a vegetable as a nervous person could wish to sit under of a pleasant night, when the katydids grate out their immemorial revelation, and the distant whippoorwill signifies his notion of what ought to be done about it. End of Some Haunted Houses, Part 1